in places where there is this existential angst that's pervasive, we see religion is thriving to a degree. That's not the case in Scandinavia, where there's a generous welfare state and there are problems, but life is, is much more comfortable than in war-torn and, and famine-stricken parts of the world. That was Conrad Hackett speaking about one factor that may play a role in how important religion is to people in different parts of the world. Religion around the globe is our focus on this episode Episode number 65 of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi everyone! In part one of this two-part series, we're going to speak about how people's religious affiliations have evolved over the past few decades, which religions are growing in numbers, and why that may be. We're going to look at religion in the United States and almost everywhere else in the world. To help us sort this all out, we've brought on an outstanding expert in the study of global religions, Dr. Conrad Hackett. Conrad Hackett is Associate Director of Research and Senior Demographer at the Pew Research Center. His expertise is in international religious demography, the sociology of religion, and how religion relates to characteristics such as gender, fertility, and education. Dr. Hackett received his doctorate from Princeton University's Department of Sociology and Office of Population Research, and was a postdoctoral research fellow in the University of Texas at Austin's Population Research Center. He also earned two graduate's degrees from Princeton Theological Seminary. Conrad is the author of The Future of World Religions, Religion and Education Around the World, The Global Religious Landscape, The Gender Gap in Religion Around the World, Global Christianity, the Global Catholic Population, and various other studies of religious demography. He frequently presents demographic research at scholarly conferences in the United States and abroad. And he's also discussed global religion with numerous media outlets, including BBC, CNN, NPR, MSNBC, The Financial Times, The New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Conrad. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on, even though we don't usually like to talk about the subjects of politics and religion to individual people, especially people we don't know. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about religion, but we're not going to proselytize. So people, don't worry about that. We're just going to learn more about what's happening in terms of religious trends. On that note, Conrad, you are an expert on global trends in religion. And I'm wondering if you would please share with our listeners how and when you became interested and involved in such a fascinating topic. Thanks, Jeff. I've been interested in religion all my life. And after college, I went to Princeton Seminary where I studied theology. 
And the, the thing about theology is if people make different claims about the divine, it's hard to evaluate these different truth claims. But another way of thinking about religion is to compare what people do that identify with different religious groups and, and how their numbers are changing. And so I went to get a PhD in sociology and focused on demography in order to look at the social consequences of religion. And I wrote a dissertation that looked at something very measurable, the number of children people have from different religious groups. And I, I found that everything else being equal, people who are active in congregations want and have more children than otherwise similar people. And then after graduate school, I had the opportunity to come to Pew Research Center, where I lead a team studying the demography of religion around the world. Was it something, Conrad, in your upbringing that made you particularly interested in religion? Yes. We don't really talk a lot about our, our own backgrounds at Pew Research Center. But yes, I, I uh, had exposure to religion growing up and, and really found it interesting to think about. And, and that motivated my decision to go to Princeton Seminary. Okay. Let me ask you, the Pew Research Center puts out a lot of great research. I'm wondering, Conrad, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit more about the research that you do. Yes, the Pew Research Center studies a lot of topics. Religion is one of the topics that a large team of people work on. We also study politics, internet, state of journalism. And one of the tools we use heavily is original survey research. So my colleagues on our religion team do religion surveys in the United States and around the world. We just did a big survey of about 30,000 people in India measuring how religion matters in that country. But my specific team zooms out a little bit to think about global trends. And we use the best available data, which oftentimes is survey data collected by my colleagues at Pew. It's also census data. About 40% of the world's people live in a country where their religious identity is measured on a census. So that's a great resource for many countries like Canada and Australia, the United Kingdom that do that. Uh, and then we also use other kinds of surveys. And the big question that we are thinking about every time there's a, there's a census wave is what does the latest data, previously it was from around the 2010 period, now we're looking at data that's just coming available for the 2020 round of census data. What does this data say about the number of people who say they're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or something else around the world? takes a lot of work to standardize all this data and kind of figure out, okay, what's the global picture? What kind of change is underway? And then after we finish a series of reports on that topic, we've also been looking at some other dynamics that drive religious change, including differences between men and women in religious levels, differences in the young and the old around the world, patterns of family formation, educational attainment, differences in fertility. And so uh, these things keep us pretty busy uh, because they're, they're interesting and big topics. And then the fact that we're doing them on a global scale means we have to do a lot of work to figure out what's the best data for each country in order to answer these questions. Yes, I can imagine what a challenge that must be. Conrad, do they actually, and I'm speaking pre-COVID here, do they actually go to the country 
and do phone calling or mail surveys? How do they actually do that? Yeah, the state of survey research is is changing and it's changing so that the right tool is different depending on, on what country you're in. Okay. In India, we worked with a local firm that did face-to-face -face interviews in different states around the country. So we have a nationally representative survey that was carried out face-to-face. -face. On the other hand, in the United States, for example, for many years, we primarily did random digit dial phone surveys. Yes. But uh, as you and a lot of listeners in the United States know, here we have caller ID on our phones and we, we tend to prefer to only talk to people we know. So phone surveys are no longer as great a tool for survey research as they once were. So what we now do in the United States is we have a master list of all the addresses where people live and we send an invitation to a random group, a random group of addresses. And we say, you know, we have this panel, we'd love for you to be involved. Here's a small couple dollars, you know, fill out this initial survey. And then we give a, a small remuneration for people to be part of an ongoing panel. And then we ask them about various topics, including religion. We use a, a mixture of these different tools. And my colleagues at Pew are focused on designing the questions monitoring the methods and writing reports. And then we work with the best survey research firms around the world who manage the staff, who actually go out face-to-face -face and, and do the interviews or make the phone calls online or manage the mailing process for sending out these mail questionnaires. Tremendous amount of work. I can yes, really it is. appreciate that. We had a guest on, by the way, Conrad, last year, Mark Schulman, you may know Mark, he's a polling expert, and he was also talking about how it's evolved, it meaning survey research, and he was talking about how, at least in some places, for example, the United States, cell phones are now also being used. They call people on cell phones or text them or whatever they're doing. Things evolve, right? And speaking of things evolving, it's a perfect segue into asking you about what has happened in the world of religion, I'll call it, over the last few decades, because we will be looking for, that's the name of the show, but we kind of look backwards a little bit first. So if you could set the stage and have us look at, over the last two or three decades, comrade, what changes or trends have we seen in religious affiliations, practices, that sort of thing, right up until COVID hit us around the start of 2020, We'll have you talk about the U.S. first, and then maybe we could get into the rest of the world. In the United States, going back to the 1960s, there was a sense among academics that religion was dying in the United States. And there was a famous Time magazine cover that said, God is dead. Yes. And yet, in the United States, unlike some other Western countries in the same period, there was actually less evidence of religious decline than the, the pundits thought we would see. So the number of people going to church and identifying as Christian was pretty high. In the 1970s, you know, Jimmy Carter identified as being a born-again Christian, and survey researchers started asking questions about being evangelical or born-again, and that emerged as a pretty salient identity for a large share of Americans. And so evangelicalism sort of emerged as a 
way that a lot of people define themselves, some who might have identified as fundamentalist in prior decades. And for a long time, resilience was the story in terms of the, the overall national trend. Now, at all points, there have been pockets of people who didn't identify with religion. But in the last couple of decades, we have seen the United States going through a transition where fewer people are identifying as Christian. And, and really, there's rapid change compared to the, the speed at which demographic groups move, where now more than a quarter of Americans say that they are either atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular as their religion. About 4% of Americans say they're atheists, about 5% say they're agnostic, and about 17% are sort of religiously indifferent. You know, they say, I don't really have a religion. And a lot of them may have grown up with some religion. Maybe they even go to church uh, or synagogue or mosque at some certain times of the year, but they're not particularly religious people. So while the United States is still highly religious compared to many other economically advanced countries, we're seeing processes of secularization developing now, uh, as perhaps was anticipated by those folks in the 1960s. Yeah, they were out ahead of it. A follow-up question about that would be, is there any correlation that you've looked at, Conrad, between somebody's identifying with a certain religion and how observant they are, whether or not they go to a church or a synagogue. So somebody might say, I'm Christian or I'm Catholic, but they may or may not go to church. How is that playing out? Are there fewer people who are actually going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque, and yet they still remain affiliated, identified with that religion? That's a great question. There's definitely a relationship between what you call yourself and what kind of practice you're likely to have. Now, some people who oftentimes are not very religious themselves like to think that, well, if you say you're a Catholic, Christian, Muslim, Jew, you, you must do certain things. There's this idea that there must be a congruence between identity and practice. And that's a fallacy. We know that just because you profess a certain religion doesn't mean that you strictly follow all the teachings of that particular faith or that you're fully devout in your practice. And yet the people who would show up for a worship service on a weekend are a lot more likely to be evangelical or Muslim or Methodist than to say they're an atheist. You know, strangely yeah. enough, all kinds of people do unexpected things. There, there are atheists who occasionally go to church or synagogue, maybe because they're married to somebody who's more faithful or they're curious or what have you. Um, and then within religious groups, there's a spectrum in terms of the average level of commitment we see. Evangelicals, for example, uh, as you might expect, tend to attend religious services more often than mainline Protestants or Catholics or Jews. In the United States, Jewish Americans often have an identity that's not so closely tied to you know, regular religious practice. There's even a lot of, of Jewish Americans who say, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm sort of an atheist or not very religious. I have this cultural identity that's aside from religion. Good answer. Sometimes I would hear about, and I still hear about, as people get older, some of them 
find religion. They find a faith. They have a stronger belief. We're still speaking about the United States. Have you found any correlation between age and people's identification with religion? So, for example, maybe in the baby boomer era when time said God is dead, you had a lot of younger people, ah, you know, who cares about God? Is there anything going on there? There is a pattern. And interestingly, the editor-in-chief of the Gallup organization, Frank Newport, had a book about religion in America a few years ago. I think it was called something like God is Alive and Well in America. He presented what he called good news for U.S. congregations. And maybe caricaturing this a little bit, it's not intentional, but essentially one of his arguments is that as people get older, they tend to give more to congregations. They tend to attend congregations more frequently. U.S. congregations now may not be exploding, but the people who are attending are in large part older people who are uh, financially in a good position to support the congregations, and they're going to be attending pretty regularly. Uh, now, a lot of congregations are interested in getting young families and children. That's kind of exciting. But Frank Newport framed this as good news for congregations. And there is a pattern where as we get older, you know, we think about the end of our lives and our legacy and what happens after we die. And that's probably related to patterns of increased religiosity. So that is a pattern. On the other hand, we see some evidence that secularization patterns are affecting people of all ages in the United mm -hmm. States. So maybe older people as they age aren't necessarily getting as involved on average as they might have in previous decades. You know, it depends on the person and the circumstances, but you could see this as a, as a good news story for congregations, yeah. as Frank Newport suggested, or you might despair that the concentration of young families being part of congregations that was seen, say, after World War II is not a trend that's as sharp now. Yes, I can see that. Let's take a look at a bigger part of the world. And this is a tough one, I realize. You spoke about changes that have happened in the United States, Conrad. You talked about going back to the 60s, and then you talked in more recent years about some of the things that might have been predicted in the 60s really didn't happen until the last 20 years. What about globally? When you think about global religious change, there's a dimension that we haven't talked about that, that may be kind of surprising, which is you can have huge global change even if no individual changes how religious they are and what they do. And the way that this is possible is that countries are experiencing population change at very different rates. So it used to be the case all around the world that women would often have seven, eight, nine children in the United States, in Europe, in Japan. You know, that's not the reality. You know, women are having one, two, three children or no children at all. Yes. And yet in Africa, there are many countries where it's still common for women to have very large numbers of children. And in some Asian countries, fertility also remains very high. So consequently, the countries in Africa and some parts of Asia are growing tremendously. They have young populations, uh, so they have more women of childbearing age, and these women are still having a lot more children than women in other parts of the world. So the religions that are concentrated in these parts of the world are 
growing a lot in number. In Africa, most people identify as either Christian or Muslim. And so that's contributing greatly to increase in the number of Christians and Muslims and increasing concentration of Christians and Muslims in Africa and in other countries that have high fertility. On the other hand, Europe especially, you know, has has pretty low fertility. So a hundred years ago, about 60% of the world's Christian population was in the nations of Europe. And it's much lower now. Wow. I think uh, something like a less than a quarter of the world's Christian population is in Europe. And increasingly, uh, Africa is the region that, that's soon going to or already has the largest share of the world's Christian population. That is fascinating. When you say Christian, that includes Catholics and all the other sects within Christianity, correct? Yes, that's right. It makes such sense, but you're right. Who would think about it that as birth rates have declined in certain areas, therefore there are fewer number of people practicing that religion or identifying with it? Africa, where you talked about, I guess India as well? Well, India will soon have the world's largest number of people. It's expected to surpass China in the next 20 years. Now, both India and China have a lot lower fertility than they had a few decades ago. China, through very intentional population policies, India has made contraception available and, and been open uh, as a government to sort of declining fertility, but also just as individual people think about how many children they want to have and can support. Education is the largest driver of how many children a woman can have. And around the world, women are getting more education and choosing to have fewer children. Nevertheless, the population in India is still quite young and fertility for now is still above replacement level, meaning that the population is still growing, although there are parts of India that already have below replacement fertility and are not growing. So it's India is sort of like 30 different countries states with populations that are they're larger than the population of many large European countries. Yes. And I think back to the survey that your people did, trying to tackle a country that has almost a billion people. Yes, many languages. Uh, it's very complex. But I wanted to say that when it comes to global change, it's not only a matter of differences in how rapidly a country's overall population is growing. There are also important dynamics in terms of what's happening within each country. So Europe not only is no longer growing at a rapid pace in terms of the number of people. I mean, in fact, if it, if it wasn't for immigration, then the number of people in Western Europe would decline. But simultaneously, there's the fact that religious identity is changing. So a lot of people in Europe who grew up with a Christian background, maybe they were baptized, maybe they went to church as children, are choosing to leave that identity behind as adults. And so that, that's an important phenomenon in Europe. On the other hand, in many African countries, even while the population is growing like gangbusters, people are still retaining Christian or Muslim identity uh, in large part. And one theory that's been proposed to explain this is called the existential insecurity theory. That's kind of a big jargony phrase, but the idea is that when people have to worry about their economic circumstances, whether they're going to have enough food to feed their family, whether they're going to be safe amid war and famine, 
that's a huge existential burden. You know, how am I going to survive? I'm stressed out. And religion is a resource that can provide hope and, and can provide access to material resources. And in places where there is this existential angst that's pervasive, we see religion is thriving to a degree that's not the case in Scandinavia, where there's a generous welfare state and sure there are problems. But life is, is much more comfortable than in war-torn and, and famine-stricken parts of the world. Excellent point. I hadn't thought about that. And it makes perfect sense. It's like, what's it? There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole? Yes, it's a similar notion. You mentioned that, unlike in Africa, let's say, that there are people who identified with one religion when they were younger, and now they're not identifying with it. I'm curious as to why that might be, and what role, if any, proselytizing, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're not going to be doing that, but is it happening in various places around the world, including Europe, and that might be causing these shifts in identification? That's a great question. And the way that we track that in our surveys is we ask people, when you're growing up, what religion were you raised in? And we ask them as adults, what is your religion today? So people may undergo multiple changes in their religious identity at different points in their lives. But what we have a glimpse into is what, if any, is the difference between their adult religion and their childhood religion. And using that, those two questions, we can track people who went from being raised with no religion to becoming Christian or Buddhist or Jewish or Hindu or what have you. And every possible combination of being raised in one of the religions that we measure versus having a different identity today. So we don't track whether people changed identity because of marriage or because they had a, a religious awakening or, or what social processes led to the change. But the most common pattern, overwhelmingly, the most common pattern of switching is people saying they grew up Christian and now they identify with no religion. Christianity is a religion practiced by the largest number of people in the world. About a third of the world's people identify as Christian. Uh, it happens to be the largest religious group in about two out of three of the world's countries and territories. So it makes sense because it's so common that there would be more people leaving this faith. But it's also about Christianity being concentrated in economically advanced countries that if you buy into this existential insecurity theory, countries that have a lot more security, where one might say there's less existential insecurity reasons to, to depend upon religion. People have more comfort to kind of seek community and solace elsewhere. We do measure all other types of switching. And in most places, we don't have evidence that proselytizing has produced a lot of religious change. Presumably, there are a lot more people seeking to convert someone to their religion than away from religion. And yet, the most common type of religious change is moving away from religion. So it seems like the people who would bring about religious change by proselytizing, they're sort of losing out, if you will, to the larger forces that are pulling people away from religion. The ranks of the religiously identified are growing is demographic. It's the fact that 
in high fertility countries, more people are being born into their parents' religion. And that's really the, the key source of demographic growth around the world. Now, that's not to say that there aren't successful efforts to convert people to various religions. I mean, of course, new religions do start and many people have a religious conversion experience. It's just that those are kind of balanced out by people leaving the same faiths and they are eclipsed by the demographic impact of where population growth is happening around the world. I would also add in other parts of the world, we, we see different things going on. In, in Africa, where Christian numbers are high, we see that there's less switching going on. And we generally see very little switching in Muslim-majority countries, which may be due to a combination of economic circumstances, you know, if you buy into the existential insecurity theory, but also it has to do with a, a different relationship between identity and state. And so in countries in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, you have a lot of wealth and yet very few people who would say they're anything other than Muslim. I wonder if fear ever has anything to do with this. People may not fully believe that if they're giving a researcher information, it's truly going to be confidential. And heaven forbid, if one of the leaders of the state or the area finds out that this person said, I'm moving away from whatever the religion is. It's just a thought. That's true. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one of our teams at Pew Research Center actually studies religious restrictions around the world. And there are places where, you know, it, it's not allowed to switch away from the religion that you are born into or the, the state religion. And uh, in some countries, when religion is measured on a census, you may say that you're Muslim or Christian or Jewish, and there's no option to say you have no religion. The expectation is everybody has some kind of religious identity. And in surveys, there are reasons why someone might not want to be candid about their identity. In India, there's a notion that caste, which is like, like race in the United States, a really important historical divide between people. There's a notion that this is not a concept that applies to Muslims or Christians because it's not part of Muslim or Christian teaching, yet Muslims and Christians in India still live in this uh, social context in which caste has consequences, but the government sets aside certain benefits in terms of education and jobs, quotas for people from a scheduled caste or, or Dalit backgrounds. And so an Indian family who wants their child to have access to these benefits might want to identify as Hindu, even though they go to a Christian church and otherwise think of themselves as Christian. So that's a complication. And for survey research and census data, there's the possibility that a certain share of people aren't telling us how they would identify in their heart of hearts, responding to these government incentives. Yes. And thank you for shining the light on that and showing us how complex this is. I could also envision scenarios where people are afraid to identify that they even have a religion. If you have strong communism. You know, interestingly, that's not really the case anymore in Russia, where, if anything, identification as an Orthodox Christian is often sort of synonymous with really being a faithful Russian. However, in China, 
and the cultural revolution, you know, identifying as religious was definitely forbidden. And the government tried to essentially wipe out religion. Now there are the five official faiths that, that one can identify with. But if you're part of the Communist Party, you're discouraged from identifying with any religion. And there, there's certain groups like Falun Gong that are forbidden. There are stories of Muslims being put under all kinds of repressive measures in, in the Xinjiang province in China. So yes, China is a country where at least certain religious identities are likely to entail government repercussions if, if you admit to them. Yes. Just a quick question there. China is included in part of your research? Yes, China is part of our global studies. We'd love to do a big religion survey in China. You know, for now, China is the largest country in the world population-wise. It's fascinating in terms of religion. It has the largest number of Buddhists in the world, the largest number of people who identify with no religion in particular, and the largest number of people in what we've called folk religion, sort of traditional local religious practices. So it matters in all kinds of ways. It's a fascinating country. Unfortunately, it's also a country where doing survey research has become difficult, especially about sensitive topics. There have been some surveys done in China, and we're looking at those on an ongoing basis and doing the best we can to report on trends in China. But India, by contrast, you know, the other country with more than a billion people, is one of the countries that measures religion in the census. So the largest religion data gathering exercise is the decennial census in India. You know, it's a great resource for measuring religion, even if there's some data questions like the possibility that somebody from the scheduled caste background might not be fully candid about their identity. It's still wonderful that there's this data available. And in China, we have nothing like census data on religion, unfortunately. This concludes part one of our two-part series on religion with Dr. Conrad Hackett. In part two, episode number 66 of Looking Forward, Conrad will speak about what COVID-19's impact has been on religion around the world, what the future of religion might look like, and what opportunities that might offer to those in the know, such as you, our Looking Forward listeners. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.